Genesis chapter 49, beginning in verse 1. Then Jacob called for his sons and said, Gather around so that I can tell you what will happen to you in days to come. Assemble and listen, sons of Jacob. Listen to your father Israel. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, the first sign of my strength, excelling in honor, excelling in power. Turbulent as the waters, you will no longer excel. For you went up into, onto your father's bed, onto my couch, and defiled it. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Their swords are weapons of violence. Let me not enter their council. Let me not join their assembly. For they have killed men in their anger and hamstrung oxen as they pleased. Cursed be their anger, so fierce, and their fury so cruel. I will scatter them in Jacob and disperse them in Israel. Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. You are a lion's cub, O Judah. You return from the prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down. Like a lioness, who dares to rouse him? The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he comes to whom it belongs. And the obedience of the nations is his. He will tender his donkey, tethered his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch. He will wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes will be darker than wine, his teeth whiter than milk. Zebulon will live by the seashore and become a haven for ships. His border will extend towards Sidon. Issachar is a raw-boned donkey lying down between two saddlebags. When he sees how good is his resting place and how pleasant is his land, he will bend his shoulder to the burden and submit to forced labor. Dan will provide justice for his people's people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan will be a serpent by the roadside, a viper along the path that bites the horse's heel so that its riders tumble backwards. I look for your deliverance, O Lord. Gad will be attacked by a band of or Dad will be a, Gad will be attacked by a band of raiders, but he will attack them at their heels. Asher's food will be rich, he will provide delicacies fit for a king. Naphtali is a doe set free that bears beautiful fawns. Joseph is a fruitful vine, a fruitful vine near a spring whose branches climb over the wall. With bitterness, archers attack him. They sh shot at him with hostility. But his bow remained steadfast. His strong arms stayed limber because of the hand of the mighty one of Jacob, because of the shepherd, the rock of Israel, because of your father's God who helps you, because of the Almighty who blesses you. With blessings of the heaven above, blessings of the deep that lie below, Blessings of the breast and womb. Your father's blessings are greater than the blessings of the ancient mountains, than the bounty of the age-old hills. Let all these rest on the head of Joseph, on the brow of the prince among his brothers. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning he devours the prey. In the evening he divides the plunders. All these are the twelve tribes of Israel. 
And this is what their father said to them when he blessed them, giving each the blessing appropriate to him. Let us now pray to our God. Lord, we ask that you would prepare us to hear your word, that you have indeed prepared us already, and we ask that you would uh, uh, soften our hearts to hear what it is that you have to say. We ask, God, that you would uh, cause your word to go forth and accomplish all that you have set out for it to do, even as you have promised you would do so in, the, in Scripture. We thank you for it. We pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would accomplish all of these things and more. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the uh, greatest theological points Martin Luther ever made was that there are two stories that men find themselves in. All mankind find themselves living in one of two realities. The first is what is called the glory story, a story about how, uh, uh, how to become great, how to return to glory, how men are destined for greatness and glory of some kind, a story that teaches we are bound for glory in some sense. We deserve glory. And this manifests itself in all kinds of ways. Uh, we often walk through this life telling ourselves that we deserve greatness and glory in some way. It manifests itself in ways when we ask questions like, why don't people appreciate me like they should? You know, don't they know how hard I work to provide for them all week? Doesn't he know how hard it is to raise these children or to deal with this particular disease? You know, the glory story says, I have this great difficulty in my life and I deserve things to be better than they are. I deserve to be great. I deserve a wife who meets my every need, who praises me every time I do the dishes. I deserve a husband who understands I'm tired at the end of the day and all I want is quiet. I deserve a cure for cancer. It's a story we tell about ourselves that says, I came from greatness, and whatever trouble I'm going through in this life is to be overcome. That is the goal of our lives. It says, I came from glory, and I am bound for glory, and I'm going to just have to do whatever it takes to overcome these particular obstacles to get there, to make my life one of glory, even if it means divorcing my husband who hasn't uh, appreciated me fully, or whatever the case may be, however we apply it. The point is, Life in the story of glory is about overcoming in order to find peace in glory. Or we live in another story called the story of the cross. A story that says something very different. A story that says the way to glory is through suffering. And Martin Luther called these two stories a theology of glory and a theology of the cross. Well, this morning, as we come to Jacob's last words, as he prepares to leave this world, he leaves behind a blessing upon God's people marked by these two particular stories, a story of glory and the story of the cross. And Jacob gives and he puts a prophetic uh, blessing upon his children. You will see this uh, unfold that it speaks towards the future, even as he is saying, you know, that I may tell you what will happen in days to come. And is an idea of what will happen in the future, not just in your own days. 
my children, but days to come. It is prophetic in its meaning, and it is one marked by a desire to enter into the everlasting hills and land of glory. Verse 26. And we see, as our text opens up, the first thing we see is a story of glory. A story of glory. As you come to the bedside of Jacob, and as he is lying dying, and his children have gathered around him, we, we've seen this before throughout the book of Genesis. And it shouldn't surprise us at what is happening. You know, at the end of the life of the patriarchs, they gather their children to them and bless them. We witness the blessing of Abraham being passed down to Isaac. And Isaac, against his own will, but according to the plan of God, passing his blessing on to Jacob. And now it is time for Jacob to pass the blessings on to the whole of Israel's people. Genesis, as a book, has been marked by these blessings and these cursing. You would call the book opens up, and we witness God blessing Adam and Eve and the children of mankind as they were made in the image of God and dwelt with God upon his holy mountain of God. And they dwelt there, and as they dwelt there with God, they dwelt in glory, and the glory of God himself surrounded them. And yet man, in his great pride, he abandons God. We sin against God, and suddenly all mankind was plunged under a curse. A curse is the opposite of blessing. They go hand in hand. Man brought the curse of sin Upon himself. And in one sense, the story of Genesis has been a story about what God will do to undo this curse, to restore mankind to blessing, to glory. And from Genesis 3 on, it has been woven into this narrative, this history of the world, how God has promised a way back from cursing to blessing, a way back from the curse of sin to the blessing of being in God's presence, a blessing that will cause the whole world to be recreated anew, where all the nations of the world will in turn be blessed. And as Genesis moves forward, that blessing promises to come, or promise to come, as promise will come through one particular person, And it will come through the seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent, a curse that will be undone and the blessing of God will indeed prevail. And as we come to this scene of blessing, those themes ought to be tugging at uh, at us as Jacob passes on a blessing, a blessing passed on from his fathers that is ultimately about blessing the whole world again, delivering them from the curse brought upon mankind. And so Jacob begins to bless his sons, and he starts with his eldest son, Reuben, the way things ought to work. And it starts out great. (laughs) Reuben, you are my firstborn son. You are my power, my first fruits, preeminent in strength and power. Notice it starts out the way it's supposed to. Reuben, you are the great one. You are, all, uh, you are over all the rest. You are preeminent in power. My power has been passed on to you. And Jacob gives him this high praise. And the very next moment, he takes it all away. Reckless as waters are you. You will not have preeminence. You who are the greatest, you will not be the greatest. You will not be first. And this blessing of Jacob, it's, it starts out and it doesn't look 
much like a blessing now anymore, does it? I mean, it is, it is an, almost an anti-blessing we are seeing given to Reuben. It is a lowering of Reuben from greatness to humility. But notice why it is that Reuben is experiencing this. It has nothing to do with favoritism or because Jacob doesn't like Reuben. Reuben, you will recall, was the son who sought to raise himself up to the place of Jacob. After Rachel died, Reuben went into Jacob's concubine, Bilhah. And the idea from chapter 35 there is when Israel first hears about it, that Reuben did this in the sight of all of Israel, we're getting an echo of a reference to uh, Absalom, David's son, as Absalom, when he sought to usurp David as the king, he goes to his father's wives on the rooftop of the king uh, of the of. Uh, the house, and in the eyes of all Israel, he goes into the wives so that they might know he is taking his father's place. He is uh, uh, establishing his domain and over his father. And so Jacob is in essence saying, as he is speaking to Reuben, you sought to raise yourself up to greatness. You sought to make yourself great, greater than myself. So you will not be great. You sought glory by raising yourself, and it has failed you. You will have no glory. It's interesting, but in this, uh, the ramifications are felt for the whole household of Reuben. No man in scriptures throughout the whole of the Old Testament is ever raised to a status of preeminence out of the tribe of Reuben. No prophets, no judges, no kings, no one notable comes from the tribe of Reuben. And it is directly related to this particular uh, uh, cursing, if you will, upon Jacob's son. But Reuben's not the only brother whose blessing doesn't quite look right. You know, Jacob moves on to Simeon and Levi, the second and third sons. And he finally gives a verdict on their actions where he has been silent from so long ago. When they slaughtered a whole city because their sister was defiled. And Jacob says, let not my glory be joined to theirs. Their traits are violence and anger and cruelty. They killed men when they were at their weakest, three days after the circumcision in the flesh. Again, their action was cruel, and it was so cruel that Jacob likens it to hamstringing an ox. The idea here is of taking an ox and in such a way uh, uh, um, strapping it down while it is still living and then be, uh, um, while it is helpless, cutting it in such a way that it would bleed to death. This is just senseless brutality. And that is the way of Simeon and Levi, Jacob tells us. They're actually, the word is used here. They are cursed here. I mean, it is striking that that word shows up in the midst of the blessing of Jacob. As we are told, he is blessing his sons. The sons of Abraham are receiving the blessing of Abraham, and they are being poured out upon God's people. And yet here is this word that Levi and Simeon are considered cursed. They will be divided and scattered in Israel, and they actually do so. They are divided and scattered when they enter into the land of Canaan, Simeon's portion within the land, it is so small, Simeon basically is absorbed into the house of Judah. And they are scattered and divided in this way. And the tribes of Levi receive no particular inheritance, they, uh, a particular portion. They receive 48 towns throughout Israel, effectively being scattered throughout all of God's people. 
And though Levi becomes the priest over the assembly of God, they never again participate in war in the same way. Violence in the same way as the rest of Israel will be called upon to do so. Their counsel is not sought in war. I mean, these three, Reuben and Levi and Simeon, they receive basically an accursed blessing. What is supposed to be a great blessing, and it looks like a curse. What is going on here? I mean, why does it look this way? It should at least give us pause as we are reading it. And even as you go through uh, the other brothers, as you look through, it is not limited to these three. These ones are just the most prominent over all the other brothers. Aside from Judah and Joseph, commentators don't quite know what to do with this mixed bag. You know, the text tells us these are supposed to be blessings, and yet they often do not look as they ought to look for a blessing. Benjamin is considered a ravenous wolf, something Scripture never looks kindly upon. Wolves are always an image of one who is a, a, a dangerous, one who ought not to be trusted. Issachar is a strong donkey, meaning that he is both strong and stubborn. Dan shall be as a serpent. Again, this is a mixed metaphor in Scripture. Sometimes it's meaning wise. We are called to be wise as serpents. Often meaning and connected with the vileness of the seed of the serpent himself. Clearly, there is a mixture of blessing and cursing for most of the sons of Jacob. And the question is, how then are these particular ones really blessed? How are they then in turn able to and to receive blessing? Well, the answer to that question becomes clear when we look more closely at Joseph and Judah, the ones who walk according to the story of the cross. The story of the cross. As you look at this text, you'll notice that over half of these verses, these blessings belong to both Judah and Judah, or Judah and Joseph. Many, much time is spent on these particular men. These men who have become the focal point in Israel's history. And Joseph doesn't really surprise us that he receives so much airtime. We've seen him already receiving blessings from his two sons. So we should anticipate his blessing will be double the portion of his, uh, his brothers as he is counted in this inheritance. And we see that take place. Joseph, the son who was returned from the back from the dead, who was resurrected back to Jacob, the son who delivered all of his people, all the people of God through God's placing him in the right place at the right time. And Jacob calls him a fruitful bough, like a tree planted by water. You can just picture how fruitful a tree is that is near a stream. And his blessing will overflow him. They will come from heaven above and from the deep below him. Everywhere that Jacob looks, there is blessing. They will reach to the everlasting hills of heaven itself. May these blessings, Jacob tells us, rest upon the head of Joseph. May they be his crown. May they be what is upon his brow. And Joseph receives this incredible blessing. It is a lucrative blessing beyond compare. Blessings coming out of his ears type of thing. You know, Notice... How these blessings come to Joseph. If you look back at verses 22 and 23, it tells us the archers attacked him. They shot at him. They harassed him. And in the Hebrew, it's a little uh, confusing. It's very difficult to translate into the English. 
because it's three verbs back to back. It sounds something like this. To make bitter, to prevail upon him, to bear a grudge, or to shoot at him persistently. This is the experience of Joseph. Joseph, as he has walked through this life, as he was brought down into Egypt, time after time after time, he, was, uh, uh, undergo, he would undergo trial after trial thrown his way. The fiery darts of the enemy were persistently shot at him. And yet what does he do? How does he respond to these particular trials and issues? Does he seek to overcome them? And return back to the promised land. Rather, the language of the text is that his bow dwells in permanence. The idea is that his bow does not move. He holds it. His arms are limber and they are strengthened by Almighty God, the one who shepherds over him. And yet he does not fire back. In other words, Joseph suffers. And yet he does not retaliate. His bow Remain stills. All these attacks upon him have only strengthened him. God Almighty has strengthened him through them, through these particular sufferings that have come into his life, through these particular actions. It doesn't seem to make logical sense to us. But Joseph is then raised in exaltation, receiving blessing upon blessing because he endured suffering upon suffering goes against the way that we think, the grain of our minds. We think if you really want to get ahead in life, if you really, truly need to get ahead, you have got to take what you get and give nothing back. We have to fight against whatever difficulties are brought into our lives and try to overcome them what, when, they, or we are, uh, you know, when we are falsely accused of sexual harassment like Joseph was. If we are innocent, we ought to fight those charges. We ought to stand against them because we long to be made glorious. We long to be lifted up, to be praised above every other name. That is the sin that has been the lie of the garden and it is, continues within us that we are to be raised in glory above God himself and whatever he deems is right in his kingdom. But we learn through Joseph, as you look at this text, this one who clearly pictures the Christ himself. Who, there is no doubt that this one is a shadow of Christ to come, that glory and blessing, the blessings that he received, the removal of the curse of sin, again, come through suffering and humility and loss, not through pride. Gain comes through losing, not through gaining, not through our own striving and overcoming. If you think about this, and if you think this is a thin analysis of the text, notice who else in our story or in this text receives the great blessing here. The one who receives the greatest blessing of this chapter, and that's Judah. And you remember who Judah is. This is the brother who threw Joseph into the pit and argued that we should sell him in order to make a buck off of him. This is the brother who walked away from the household of faith, the one who slept with a cult prostitute and refused to care for a widow. And yet Judah is the one who will be blessed here. Not because of his own, not for his own sake, not because of his own merits, for he has been found in the scales to be very wanting, but because of another who will come through him, even as this prophecy in turn guarantees, as it looks to days to come, 
in the future because he has humbled himself, offering his own self to take the place of his brother. You'll remember two key moments in the life of Jacob. One are when he looked to Tamar and said, she is more righteous than I. For I am a guilty sinner. And what she has done is believe in the promises of God. He recognized who he was. And in turn, he acted in accordance with knowing who he was. And he was willing to sacrifice himself to take his brother's place when they returned to Egypt. And Benjamin is threatened to be, sold or to be put into slavery. He says, take me. I will go in his place. I have promised that no harm would come to this son. May I be his substitute. Your, and, and the text goes on about this particular one who has confessed these things. And he tells us, your brothers will praise you in verse 8. And immediately our ears should be pricking up because this word, this particular word in the Hebrew for praise is used in the Bible only ever of God. It's never used of man, no other. God alone is praised by this particular word. And now it is being told to Judah, your brothers will praise you even as they praise God Himself. It is prophetic by its very nature that the seed of the woman will come through you, Judah. The Son of God will come through you, Judah, who will receive praise as no mere mortal man can. The one that we have looked for and found wanting and waiting for, excuse me, the one we are looking for and waiting for, he is going to come through your household and your hand will be upon the neck of your enemy. Those who stand against you will fall. This son of God, the seed of the woman who will come from your line, will vanquish the seed of the serpent. Your brothers will bow down then before you. The people of God will bow down to you. The lion of Judah will not be be cursed, but this one is one who shall not or you should not seek to arouse him. For he is one who is mighty in battle. Clearly, there are allusions here connecting him to the greater son of David and Solomon. This one is going to be a lion of Judah who reigns as a king. The scepter will not depart from his hand. And as you come to verse 10, there are three different ways that you can interpret the end of that verse. One about tributing or tributes being brought to him. One about a scepter not departing from him until Shiloh comes. But no matter which way you interpret these particularly sticky Hebrew words, it is agreed upon by all commentators that it means the scepter will not depart from Judah until it comes to one particular member of the household of Judah. All are agreed that one that is being spoken of is the Messiah himself, the Christ. The scepter will not depart from Judah until it comes into the hands of Christ himself who will, who will rule from everlasting to everlasting. And when that one comes, the text tells us he will tie his donkey to the choicest vine. Now just consider what that picture means. <laughs> you know, a donkey being tied to the best vine of the land. This is something nobody does uh, because a donkey will eat whatever food is within reach of its vine. So you don't waste the choicest grapes that will make the choicest of the wines unless, unless there is such wealth and abundance in the land that it doesn't matter where you tie him up, there will be this vast 
blessing upon God, an abundance that you can, can't tie him to any vine without it being a choice vine. Notice the next line adds to it. He will wash his garments in wine. You know, the point isn't that wine should uh, work better than shout. Don't try this at home. Uh, this isn't telling you to switch your laundry detergent to wine. Uh, it will never work, by the way. Uh, the point is that the Messiah, when he comes, he will bring such abundance and dominion and greatness. That is what his kingdom will be made of Israel, uh, to Israel, that you can wash your ditches, dishes in 20-year-old scotch. It won't matter. It, wouldn't, it won't be like throwing money away because there's such abundance in the land that people are starting fires with $100 bills. You know, the Messiah's reign is one where it will bring about a wealth of abundance. You ever wonder why it is that Christ began his ministry in the book of John? That the very first miracle that John tells us about that he was uh, recorded was turning water into wine at the land of Canaan. John could have written about any other miracle, and yet he uses this particular miracle so that you might know this one was the Christ. Abundance has come in the person of Christ. Notice he brings out the best wine at the end of the wedding, that which came from the choicest of vines. And John writes and basically says, hey, this guy is the Messiah. His reign is one that will bring abundance and ultimate blessing. And that has begun here. He makes common water, 120 gallons at least to 150, into the greatest wine of the land. Surely the Lion of Judah is here and abundance has come. The glory of God is manifesting itself in this one. The scepter has passed into this one's hand. Here is the one whom all honor and glory are due, who will show us the way to glory. That is John's confession as he writes these words and yet people of God as the Christ comes even as we see Joseph praised and Judah raised to promise they all walk a different road than that gets them to glory and it isn't by raising themselves it wasn't when they made themselves great that they are elevated but it is as they walk the road of the cross that they obtain glory isn't that indeed what the scriptures tell us, that Christ came in humility? He walked in order that through his descent, through his suffering, he might be raised then to glory. That his name indeed would be above every name. He took the road of suffering for his people, something that Joseph pictured the coming Christ would do. And Christ comes, and he walks a far different road to glory than Reuben or Simeon, or Levi. It's not through raising oneself that a man obtains glory. It is through the cross. Glory, glory indeed comes through the Son of God who came, the Son of Man who pressed the wine of the very wrath of God against his lips and said, this blood, this cup is the new covenant in my blood and by it blessings will flow to you because I took the curse upon myself. And the reason that we can look to this text and see these men who are given these uh, uh, mixed blessings and even uh, uh, cursing 
is that even, uh, even as they are here, they are blessed through the one who has come. They are blessed through the one who brings glory. And though we are more like Reuben and Simeon and Levi or any of the ambiguous brothers, we are brought into God's blessing just as they are because of the cross, because he became a curse for us in order that you, the rest of the people of God, might find blessing takes a different road than Reuben in order that Reuben may make it to glory. He deals with our high-handed, repeated rebellion through the suffering of the cross in order that glory might be given to you. People of God, there is only one way to glory. And it is not through seeking it or grabbing it for ourselves. It's not through raising ourselves up. It's not through seeking our own kingdoms first or thinking that we are more important than we are, but it is by seeing that our best is nothing before a holy God, that we cannot raise ourselves up, that we must return to God through the cross to receive glory. Oh, people of God, there is one way to glory, and it's through death. Even the death of our Savior, whose very blood was shed so that the rest may come to glory. People of God, God frees us from having to have our best lives now. He frees us from having to seek our own kingdoms, to raise ourselves up in our own kingdoms upon this world, from having to be looked well upon by all men, from all these things that are tied to a theology of glory, and it says, Come, come, he who has no money, come, buy and eat. He who has no, he has no, he who thirsts, come and drink wine. Humble yourselves before God. Know who you are before Him, a sinner who is not righteous. One who uh, walks through this life, this life that is filled with many suffering, sufferings of every kind, and yet one that is determined to look upon our Savior and see him high and lifted up upon a cross, and that through that death, through his suffering, might glory come for the people of God. People of God, that is your story. That is the story that you walk in now. That is what defines you as you walk through this present evil age. Not one about making our own name, making a name for ourselves, for one has given you a name and he has sealed it with the bonds of his own blood. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we praise you. The glory is still attainable for us. We praise you that one has come who has lived in perfect righteousness, who became the Son of Man, and who is the Son of God, one who fulfills all of these prophecies given to Judah. We praise you that you are, have wrought him and brought him into this world in order not that we would flounder about, but in order to bring us to glory with him and through him. For surely, Father, it is at the cross that our sins and our burdens are washed away. Father, we pray that you would continue to strengthen us 
in this blood, in the blood of your new covenant, in the blood that was shed for the forgiveness of sins. We pray that you would continue to strengthen and build up your people as we walk through this age, that we might turn our eyes to glory and yet know what is going on or why it is that things may not appear as glorious as they ought when we suffer through various trials of all kinds. We pray, Father, that you would turn us to the cross, that we would see that we are filling up what is lacking in the death of Christ. Father, we praise you. And we give you all glory. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.